so much that uh, you are with us. Even when we're feeling a little chilly, uh, even when it's a little cool outside. Uh, and Lord, we do pray that you'd help us to get things regulated here in this building uh, so that we can be good stewards of your resources. We can be good stewards of the natural resources uh, that we have in our world. Uh, and uh, that we can all do all of this while worshiping you and rejoicing in you in this place that you have designed and you have created for your worship. Uh, and so we thank you for that and we praise you for that. And Father, as we come to you today, we continue to lift up the needs of this building to you. Uh, you know what we need in terms of getting the lift uh, finally repaired, uh, getting uh, uh, different systems in the building working right, working properly, uh, and even the redevelopment that uh, you want us to do. And Father, we pray that you could continue to guide us and lead us in this whole process. Uh, and Father, we continue to pray that you would restore to us that which... Uh, uh, effectively we've lost because of things going around in this area and agreements not being kept uh, and Father we pray that you'd restore that to us abundantly and we continue to pray for that and Father we pray that you would help us as a church to shine as a bright light here in the city of London we pray Lord God that the light of Jesus would shine forth from this place to chase away all darkness and we choose to follow you and to serve you alone. We will not bow down to other gods, whether uh, they are Hindu gods or atheistic gods or, or materialistic gods. We will not bow down to them, but we choose to trust in you. And we choose to serve you and serve you alone, no matter what, even if it means paying the ultimate price uh, of our entire being, our entire lives and the life of this church. We will continue to serve you and honor you. So let Jesus shine forth from this place. Move in power. And we continue, Father, to pray for this outpouring of your Holy Spirit that you promised would come, that we really feel is upon us. There's so many things, Lord, that we feel uh, are in the heavenly places, resources that you promised to release, uh, the promised Holy Spirit and a new, out, fresh outpouring of your Holy Spirit, growth and, uh, and vitalization. And so, Lord, we pray that you'd release this now through Jesus Christ by your mercy and by your grace. Uh, that you'd release this upon us in the power of your Holy Spirit so that Jesus could receive the glory and honor that he is due. And Lord, as we come to you, we know that uh, all these prayers are not for us. Uh, it's for the uh, nearly 8 million people within 15 miles of where we are right now who do not know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. We cry out to you for this city. We cry out to you for London, Lord God, that you would release your Holy Spirit in power so that thousands, if not millions of people would come into your kingdom fully surrendering their lives to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we ask that you'd prepare your church for this outpouring, prepare your church for this awakening, prepare your church around London for this revival uh, so that you receive the glory, honor, and praise that you're due. Now, Father, as we go to your word, I pray that you'd open it up to us, and I ask that your Holy Spirit would rest upon me so that I can proclaim your word to your people boldly and faithfully through Jesus Christ our Lord. We love you, and we honor you, we worship you and adore you, and pray all of this through Jesus Christ. Amen. We're going to start uh, in Hebrews chapter 12, even though we read the first few verses uh, a couple of weeks ago. I want to read those again. Such great 
verses. So we'll start from verse 1 down to verse 11. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Then over to James, the fifth chapter of James. We're going to start with verse 16. By the way, those of you who know City Temple know that we do the Freedom in Christ course here and the steps to freedom in Christ and that they're very important to us. And this is actually the key verse why we do this. So from verse 16 down to the end. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth, and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. May God bless to us this reading from his holy word. Tomorrow through Wednesday, uh, Karen and I will be up in Derbyshire doing a Freed to Lead conference. And we've been doing these conferences for a number of years now. And there's one thing that I share at every conference that always uh, amazes and befuddles the people who come uh, and they find it difficult to believe, but it's this, and many of you might not know this about City Temple and about one of our requirements for staff at City Temple. At City Temple, uh, if you are a staff person, if, uh, a person, somebody employed by City Temple, if you see me doing something wrong that you think is wrong, 
Not, doesn't necessarily even have to be wrong, but if you think that I'm doing something that's wrong, maybe sinful, or maybe just inappropriate, you are required by our staff handbook to tell me. And if you do not tell me that you think I've done something wrong, and later it turns out that I have done something wrong, that is grounds for summary dismissal here at City Temple. Um, people are just kind of blown away by that. But that means, yes, uh, just what it says, that if you're employed here at City Temple, you have an obligation to tell me if you think I sin. So don't forget that, Joshua. Yeah. Uh, that, that is your obligation. Otherwise, you can get fired if it turns out that you saw something and you didn't correct me on it. And I remember that, by the way, it doesn't happen very often, but it does happen. I remember a few years ago, I sent out, I was sending out an email, and this was when uh, Mark, who was employed with us at the time, uh, he was the person processing all the emails that I wanted to send out, and I sent him an email and that I said, okay, send this out to the church. And he sent me an email back rather sheepishly. I, I, I could just tell, uh, you know, that his hesitance on the other side of the email. But he says, you know, Rod, you remember when you told us that we needed to tell you if we thought you were doing something, you know, that wasn't quite right? Or, and I said, yes. And he said, well, I, I, I think you need to rewrite this email. I don't think it expresses what you want it to express. And he was absolutely right. And it was really great, and it was so exciting to me to see that people were actually doing that. Because to me, one of the big things, and, and you remember, I was raised in a shame-based family. And this comes out of that. I mean, this is the background for that. I was raised in a shame-based family. And you know, what is worse than sinning in a shame-based family is people knowing that you're sinning. People exposing your sin. And, uh, and so I brought this in so that if people saw me doing something I shouldn't be doing, before they exposed it, they would correct me. Because it's absolutely essential that we do this for one another. One of the most common questions that were asked in the first couple of weeks of this series uh, was, Okay, you're talking about covering people. You know, you don't want to expose sin. You want to cover people and protect people. But, you know, does that mean you're covering up sin? Does that mean you don't deal with it? Does that mean that you don't uh, admit it? Someone said, well, what if I have somebody in my workplace who is doing something wrong and I know that they're doing something wrong? Does that mean that I just cover over it? Do I, do I talk to them about it? Do I tell them about it? You know, can't I get them? You know, can't I do something about this? Uh, or is that using shame as a weapon, which we said we're not going to do? And that's an absolutely legitimate question that we really have to wrestle with. And most of the time, we tend to think of this whole idea of, of correction and what, what happens when someone sins almost in, in a black or white kind of dynamic. And, and hopefully we're going to see today that when we properly understand it, dealing with shame does not mean that we just push sin under the carpet. Dealing with shame does not mean that we just cover over some, someone's wrongdoing. Dealing with shame does not mean that we, we refuse to correct somebody, but actually, it's quite the opposite. And we're going to see how. We're going to see what God's doing. Now, as we've been talking about shame here, remember, 
we have said here very clearly, we cannot hope to overcome shame without the gospel of the cross. It's only Jesus Christ in the cross that has overcome our shame, has paid the price for our sin, has freed us from shame, and allowed us to have new life. And this shame we've been talking about, it's this painful sensation that you and your very self and identity are, or at least appear to be, ugly, disgraceful, damaged, defective, or inadequate because of something that you've done or something that's been done to you that seems to indicate that there's a defect in you as a person, that something's fundamentally wrong with you as a person. But of course we know that in the cross, Jesus Christ, by grace through faith, united us with himself so that in union with him we might be free from shame and that we now as Christians are clothed with Christ in union with him so that we might not be exposed in shame. And that's our gift. And that's what Jesus has done for us. And it's the only way, Jesus is the only one who has a solution for the shame problem that is afflicting humanity all around the world. And Jesus has called us as his people clothed in Christ, has called us into partnership with him to overcome shame. We are to be his instruments in the world, serving one another and serving people who are not yet even in the church to help them to have freedom from shame in their own lives. Jesus has called us as his body and his bride to join him by overcoming shame, by, in overcoming shame, by becoming a shame-resistant community of faith. And as the church of Jesus Christ, we must resist shame, we must refuse shame, not only over our own lives, but on the lives of other people. We need to go to warfare to battle against shame. And as we began to see last week, honor is a weapon that we wield by God's grace through faith in connection with the gospel to overcome shame. God has given us honor as a tool, as a weapon, as, as, as a process to help others experience freedom from shame in their own lives, to help others overcome shame. And we saw last week that honor is to recognize, respect, and affirm the worth or the value of a person in the context of community. Honor does not occur outside the community of faith. There is no honor outside of us being together. There's no honor individually. The honor that we have comes corporately, even though we experience it individually. And there are many kinds of false honor that's present in the world, but all true honor comes from in and in reference to God and who he is and what he does. And we saw last week how we have this intrinsic honor. There's an honor that all people have because we're created in the image of God and Jesus died for us. And there's a special honor that we have as the people of God because we've been called sons of God. We are saints, we are holy ones, and we have that honor. Now this is the surprising part here. Rightly understood, biblical discipline is a way to honor someone to help them overcome shame. Biblical discipline is a tool of honor for people to overcome shame. Now the problem is, 
most of the time in our experience, the people who have tried to discipline us have either used shame as a tool to discipline in an inappropriate way, or they have not understood what real discipline is all about. So we're going to begin to look at that, and we're going to see that here uh, today as we look at the text and, and as we look at this whole issue of honor and shame. So discipline, biblical discipline, is a way to show honor that will overcome shame. It's a way to show honor that will overcome shame. Now, first of all, discipline is the honor that we receive as sons. Discipline is the honor that we receive from God as sons. We first have to receive this honor, and we receive this from God. Now, what is discipline? Well, God's discipline, and I'm going to distinguish God's discipline and human discipline, because God disciplines us perfectly, and humans, we don't. But God's discipline is a painful process to correct us, to align us with his will, and to train us so that we receive the fullness of our sonship, so that we share in God's holiness, and so that we experience the peaceful fruit of righteousness in the context of community. Let me say that again. God's discipline is the painful, that's everybody's favorite word in this definition, by the way, painful. God's discipline is the painful process of correcting, aligning, and training us so that we receive the fullness of our sonship, share in God's holiness, and experience the peaceful fruit of righteousness in the context of community. So when God disciplines us, he's going to correct our behavior, and, and then he will align us. You know, it's like if you break a leg. If someone says, well, I'm just going to put a cast on this leg without putting the leg back into alignment, but without correcting the leg, you'll die. You know, you get a disease, gangrene, your leg rots and falls off. It's not a pretty sight. You don't want that to happen. So even though it's painful, you have to have the doctor kind of put your leg back into alignment so that it will heal properly. And that's what this concept of discipline is all about. It's a process of correcting, of aligning, and then training us so that we experience all these blessings. The fullness of our sonship, the sharing in God's holiness, and the peaceful fruit of righteousness. We have to understand the essence of God's discipline is not punishment or vengeance. And this is where we often go wrong in our perception of what God is doing. Many times we are experiencing discipline and we think God is punishing us for something. But the word punishment is a different word from the word discipline in the scriptures. Vengeance is a different word and a different concept entirely. So a lot of times we're going through a difficult time. We know that God's doing something in us, but we're really upset because we say, oh God, you're punishing me. Uh, how can you punish me? But John tells us that, that there is no fear in the love of God because fear has to do with punishment. And we're not going to be punished. God is not punishing us. Jesus bore that for us on the cross. And so when we're going through discipline, it's never about punishment. And it's never about vengeance. 
It's never. The essence of God's discipline is God putting the wrong things right so that we can be healthy. The essence of discipline is honoring, not shaming. In discipline, God honors us as sons. He does not shame us. And we need to hold on to that concept because a lot of times the problem we have with God and His discipline is that we misperceive what is happening and we misunderstand what is happening and so we get angry with God. I remember a number of years ago, this is over 20 years ago now, uh, I was in the States and God spoke to me on a Monday morning. He said, Rod, I'm going to humiliate you. Now, do you know, humiliation has to do with shame. It has to do with totally exposing somebody. And I thought, okay, that can't be God. Then Tuesday morning, I'm in my prayer time. Rod, I'm going to humiliate you. Okay, now I've heard this twice. Uh, you know, you, you get once, twice, okay, maybe that's a coincidence. I had bad pizza the night before, whatever. Then the next day, same thing. Rod, I'm going to humiliate you. And then Thursday, we had a denominational meeting, and I won't tell you the whole story in this context because it'd take too long, but the long and short of it was that God had me stand up and declare something which turned out to feel very humiliating for me. But actually, even though it was humiliating and I experienced all those feelings around humiliation, at the same time, God used it to bless me, uh, and it was an extraordinary experience. And I wouldn't change that experience. I wouldn't trade it. It was part of God's discipline in my life, but it produced some peaceful fruit of righteousness so that I've never been afraid of that kind of thing ever, ever again. It was extraordinary. Now, if I thought God was punishing me or if I got, thought that God was getting vengeance against me, I would have run in fear. But I knew that God was my perfect heavenly father and that he would not use shame to destroy me or to tear me down or to get vengeance on me or to punish me. And so I trusted him and I cooperated with him and he achieved the outcome that he desired in my life. And that's key for us. And what are the desired outcomes of God's discipline? The scriptures mention several here. The first one and probably the most important one is that discipline is the validation of our sonship. If God disciplines you, it means you're his son. That means you women as well. So discipline validates our sonship. God also wants to discipline us so that we will live more fully in surrender to him and experience the life that he has for it in its fullness. God disciplines us so that we can experience what is really good, not just what we think is good. And God's determined to bring about good for us. God intends good for us. God superintends good. You all remember that from a year or so ago. God disciplines us so that we might share in His holiness. God wants us to be like Him, to be set apart, holy, as He is holy, and so He will discipline us for this. God disciplines us so that we can receive this peaceful fruit of righteousness as we cooperate and the only way you can receive the peaceful fruit of righteousness is if you cooperate with God as he is going and working to discipline you. And God also disciplines us. Another outcome is so that he will cover our shame 
our fear and our guilt with Christ Jesus. God is disciplining us so that we can be free from shame and so that we can resist shame in our lives and not be manipulated and controlled by other people because of shame. It's extraordinary. And the process that God uses is going to be different for all of us. Uh, I've seen parents over many, many years now that have had more than one child, and I've learned this, that parents do not discipline all their children in the exact same way. They can't, because every child is different. And so God will discipline each of us in a particular way that's for our good and that is designed for us. For some people, it might be getting up early when you're a late night person. He might tell you, okay, I want you to get up early now and for the next five years I want you to be up at six and I want you to pray for an hour or get up at five and pray for an hour or four and pray for an hour. Now that might not be the discipline that he uses in in my life and I hope it's not, but it was at one point in time in my life actually. Uh, It's going to be different for different people. Some people, the discipline comes through fasting. Some people, the discipline comes through feasting. Some people, the discipline comes by going into the flow of the person that God made you to be. Sometimes it's going in opposite that. You know, whatever it is, God will tailor make the discipline for your life. But the biggest issue here for us, this discipline is training us to endure. Our endurance is one of the most important parts of our faith in Jesus Christ. We all know people who started out well but fell away. We do not want to be those people. And so I want God to discipline me so that I can endure. I don't want to quit when I'm 74 and a half years old just before the goal. I want to keep going until God calls me home. And that should be true for every one of us. And sometimes it just isn't easy. It's hard to live for Jesus faithfully, but God disciplines us to train us so that we can endure, so that we can keep going. But there are limits to God's discipline. I mean, someone might ask, okay, but does that mean that God never uses shame and God never exposes our shame? And certainly it does not. In fact, you can look both Old and New Testament where God and Jesus readily expose shame. It's very clear. When does God do this? It's when people are shameless when they should be shameful. There are certain things that we do that should cause shame. As we said, shame is a normal response to our sinfulness. So if you are sinning and you know that you're sinning, you should feel ashamed because you're sinning. That's normal. That's normal. And that shame feeling should drive you to Jesus to repent, to get clean, to obey, to be disciplined. When shame does not drive you to be disciplined and you start to become shameless, that's when you know God is going to get close to stepping in and exposing your shame. And he's done that. He did that for the Pharisees. He did that in the Old Testament for the the Jews, uh, the Hebrews that were following idols. Uh, He does that in the New Testament church. God will expose the shame of the shameless so to provoke them to deal with the shame issue in their lives. But that for God is a last resort. 
That's not where God goes first. God does not normally use shame as a tactic for discipline. It's only when we are shameless, when we should be shameful, that God will often step in and deal with that. So that's God's discipline. And God disciplines us so that we will receive the honor of sons. Discipline is a sign of God's honor. So when God is disciplining you, he is honoring you. He is saying, you are my son. You are valuable to me. I love you with all the passion of my being. We used to say, God loves you just like you are, but he loves you too much to let you stay that way. And that's basically the whole issue around discipline. But discipline, then, is also the honor we give as sons. It's not only the honor we receive, but it is an honor that we give. Now, human discipline is the painful process of correcting, aligning, and training people to magnify their worth as human beings, to learn to do what is good and proper, and to experience the peaceful fruit of righteousness in the context of community. Notice the similarities here. You know, human discipline also involves correcting, aligning, and training people. And what we're doing is to magnify their worth as human beings. And this is where the problem often comes in. Many people, whether it's in the marketplace or the church, are using discipline to try to diminish people, not to magnify the worth of people. And if you use discipline to bring somebody down, it's sin. Discipline's purpose is never to bring someone down. It's to magnify their worth and value as human beings. That's our purpose. Now, not everybody receives it that way. I understand that. But we have to keep that purpose in mind. So human discipline is the painful process of correcting, aligning, and training people to magnify their worth as human beings so that they learn to do what is good and proper and that they experience the peaceful fruit of right relationship in the context of community. Again, the essence of our discipline as human beings is to put wrong things right. Discipline is never for punishment or vengeance. You know, one of the biggest problems of our society, and it's most societies today, is you look at the, the, the justice system. The justice system is not about justice. It's about punishment. It's about vengeance against those who we think, society thinks, has done wrong, and so we want to get vengeance against them and belittle them and humiliate them and push them aside and treat them as if they are not real human beings. That is punishment, that is vengeance, that is not discipline, and it's never discipline. And that's one of the biggest ways that you can distinguish it. And by the way, it's one of the biggest challenges in our hearts. Because as I have talked to person after person, and I'm talking to Christians now, as I'm talking to Christian after Christian, many of us, we want to discipline people to get back at them. Well, this person hurt me, so isn't there anything I can do because they hurt me? That motive is vengeance, it's not discipline. 
Oh, oh, this person, they they treated me inappropriately. Isn't there any way to get to them? This person is a drag in the workplace, and they're really bringing the whole team down. Isn't there any way that I can just kind of cut them out like a cancer and cast them aside and just ditch them? You see, that motivator, that idea in our minds that we think is discipline is never discipline. Discipline is always seeking to magnify a person's worth so that they experience the good things that God has for them as a human being. It's never about justice or vengeance. It's not shaming people. It's honoring people. And when we're disciplined, there's several outcomes that we should desire as well that are parallel to what God says. First of all, discipline is a validation of our relationships. One of the things, if if I ever come to you and I speak a correction to you, one thing you should know above all else is that that means that I love you. If I don't care about you, I'll just let you go whichever way you're going. If I don't care about you, it doesn't matter to me if you're about to fall off a cliff in your life. But if I care about you and I see you going the wrong way, and I come up with the courage to say something about it, that means that I love you. By the way, that's one of the reasons, it's totally changed my attitude toward people criticizing me. Well, a lot of criticism, everybody gets criticized, and I I know a lot of the criticism that I receive, it's not 100% accurate, no one's is actually. But if somebody has enough courage to come to me, not some anonymous thing or not some email thing, But if they come to me personally and say, Rod, I'm really struggling with this. I saw you do this and I don't understand it. Or even if they're, I saw you do this and I think it's sin, repent you sinner. Uh, Even if it's harsh. Because I I know if they're doing that and and it gets harsh, it seems harsh to me. It's not necessarily because they intend it to be harsh. It's just because we struggle with this, right? I don't know anybody that does this easily. Uh, But if you've got the courage to do that, One thing I know, even if you're absolutely wrong, and I believe you're absolutely wrong, one thing I know is that you care about me. And if for no other reason, because I know that that's a demonstration of your care, I will receive it and I will pray about it and I will process it and I will honor you because of it. And that needs to be our attitude toward one another, by the way. Because discipline is a validation that the relationship is important to us. Another goal is that discipline should allow us to receive the benefits of being a part of the community. So often people think of discipline as something that sets people apart, that sets them out. That's not discipline, that's punishment. Discipline should more fully bring someone into the community so that they can experience all the benefits. We want people through discipline to experience what is truly good, not just what they think is good. We also, looking at James, we want to help people avoid things that will bring death to our souls. There are certain things that we all can do and we can fall into it quite easily that will bring death to our souls and we might not even realize it. I mean, I'm a guy, I like a good debate. Uh, But I know that if I let myself go in a debate so that I I get into this win-at-all-cost kind of attitude, even if it's for a righteous cause, it will bring death to my soul. So I'm thankful I've got brothers and sisters around me that say, Rod, take a chill pill. Remember you're loving people. Well, they they don't usually say take a chill pill. I just 
It's what I could think of at the moment. Also, another outcome of discipline is so that people will receive the peaceful fruit of righteousness in community as they cooperate with the discipline. And you have to cooperate with discipline. Uh, we want to bring back the wanderer, according to James, and we want to cover people's shame, fear, and guilt. The purpose of discipline is so that the shame is not exposed, but so that the person repents and gets free from the shame and the fear and the guilt. And the process of discipline, again, for every person is going to be a bit different, but again, it's about training people to endure. And there's some principles we need to follow. I'll mention them briefly. We need to emphasize the person's worth and value. We must never forget that we're disciplining, we're, we're speaking a word of correction. We're doing something because the person is worth, has worth and value. We must always distinguish the person from what has been done or said. Always distinguish the person from the wrongdoing. You know, discipline says, hey, I saw you do this, and I think it was sin. Shame says, you terrible sinner, how could you do such a thing? You see the difference? But for much of history, the church has majored on, you terrible sinner, how could you do such a thing? and not separating the, distinguishing the person and their value from the wrongdoing. You have to focus on what you've actually seen or heard. You can't discipline that which you've not seen unless there's at least two or three independent witnesses. From time to time, I get people to come up to me and say, oh, Rod, this person did this to me. You know, come and, and deal with them. And I say, well, I haven't seen it. You know, there's, I, I'm not going to go on one person. But I say, I'll, I'll listen and I'll watch. I'll see if I observe the behavior, then I'll do something about it. Uh, but if I have three people come to me independently who have seen the same behavior, then I have more boldness to go and talk to the person. And so it has to be something you've seen or heard, or there's at least two or three witnesses. And there's also, it needs to always be some kind of measurable objectives or unambiguous outcomes. You know, if, if, I, if I'm talking to someone, I say, well, well, you just need to get better. What does that mean? You know, and if I have a hearing problem, I might think that they, they said, you just need to get butter. And I'm thinking, okay, what does butter have to do with anything? Now, I might as well have said the same thing because it's, it's not clear to people. But the process that God is using and the process that we use will be different for the person. And again, there are limits to our discipline. There are limits. When somebody is shameless, when they should be experiencing shame, when somebody shamelessly refuses to deal with the issue that is there, then it is proper that this should be exposed and this should be dealt with. And that's why the Bible gives clear reasons to do this. If you have somebody at work who is shameless in their wrongdoing and you've taken this approach and you've shown value to them as a person and you've gone through the process and they continue to be shameless, then you have to expose what's being done. But most of the time we start there, we don't end there. And the good news is we can avoid discipline. We can avoid discipline from God. We can avoid discipline from one another. To avoid discipline, that's what James says, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you might be well, so that you might be healed, so that you might be going in the right way. 
That is God's desire for us to become a community where we're openly confessing our sins to one another, where we're praying for one another, not, not by openly, I don't mean stand up next Sunday and tell everybody what you've done, but where we're, we're doing this on an ongoing basis so that shame is covered, sin is healed, and we're walking in a way that's aligned with God's purpose, trained for righteousness, and experiencing the full blessing of ourselves as sons. We all have a choice. We need to begin by understanding that discipline is God's way of showing us honor. And as we discipline one another in a biblical way, we show honor to one another. And it's this honor that cuts away shame. It's this honor that keeps us free and shame resistant. It's this honor that helps us to keep going. It's this honor that means, yeah, you might be struggling with a sin right now. Maybe you've got a sin pattern or a sin tendency in your life and you've gone back to it time and time. You say, God, help me. And God disciplines you. And we, we confess to one another. and We're praying for one another. And because we're doing that and we're engaging in that and we're pushing aside the shame and we're resisting that and we're seeking to walk into righteousness, God will never expose that shame. There are a lot of people who are living in fear right now that God is going to expose your shame, but if you are not shameless, if you know that you've done something that is shameful and you feel shame about it and you're going to God for healing and freedom, God will not expose that. He will discipline you until you are free from that issue in your life until that shame is taken away and until you walk as an honorable person before the Lord. So we must not fear the Lord shaming us, exposing us, humiliating us, and we must not do that for one another. We must not do that for one another, but instead, as people who are in union with Christ Jesus, both individually and corporately, we walk in the fullness of that reality as sons of God, paid for by the blood of Jesus shed on the cross, which washes away our shame, and we become shame-resistant uh, Christians and a shame-resistant community who choose to wield honor both in the church and outside the church in such a way that even through discipline, the shame is cut away and we walk in righteousness and we will experience the peaceful fruit of righteousness. That's the promise, all to the glory and honor of Jesus. God honors you by disciplining you. God honors you by loving you. And he's shown this so clearly and so fully in the Lord's Supper. This is God saying to us, I love you. And my son Jesus, in his body broken on the cross, and his blood shed on the cross, has done everything so that you might live in freedom from shame as my son, advancing my kingdom and seeing many people in the world come to Jesus and be set free from shame in their lives. And this is God's desire for us. And every time we gather at this table, every time we eat the bread and we drink the cup, we recognize there is no shame in me because I, am a son of God. Father God, thank you so much.
Thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you that you do discipline us always for our good. And thank you that your desire is never to expose us and expose our shame. But it's always to cover us in Christ. Jesus, thank you that we live in union with you. Thank you for the love that you've lavished on us through your death and resurrection. Holy Spirit, thank you for moving in and through us now. We welcome you here, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And Almighty God, we ask that you'd bless this bread and this cup, that they would be for us truly the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, broken and shed on the cross. And as we eat this bread and drink this cup, may we be once again renewing, taking in ourselves Christ's shame-free existence in union with him as saints, as holy ones, as sons of God. We love you and we worship you and we welcome you. And we pray all this through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.